Shaking Christianity, Chapter 5. Welcome. In this episode, we'll be seeing what it's like to move back in time from the John Gospel to the other three stories about Jesus in the New Testament, which were written earlier. In this process, as I've considered the Jewish setting of these stories, I've made some observations and followed some reasoning about what people might have believed. In John, there seems to be quite a difference between what the writer believes and what the people who were with Jesus believed. The writer came later. The events and the characters in the story were earlier. Looking at this difference can be quite interesting. But to see this difference, you need to stop reading these stories as you would read a work of fiction, where you don't question the author. And this applies particularly to Christians. In a work of fiction, the author knows everything that's going on. He or she can describe events, describe characters, what they're doing at different times and places, tell us what they said, what they're thinking, everything. No one asks the writer how they know all this. It's a work of fiction, a product of their imagination, and this is understood. The fiction writer is also a fictional character in a way. There is no one who can play this role in a real-life story writing as if from an all-seeing, overhead perspective. This sort of coverage can only be done with creativity. Someone who writes about actual events writes in a different way, if their intent is to be accurate. They can only give a limited amount of information based on what they have access to. An honest reporter will write in a way that recognises this. Even someone writing about an event that they've actually experienced can only give a limited perspective. But a writer of fiction who pretends to be writing fact, or a writer who takes a story about actual events and embellishes it, is mixing fact with fiction, and this is a different genre. So the way you read fiction is, you suspend your disbelief. You immerse yourself in the world the writer is creating. But how do you read this special genre that we find in the New Testament? It's not like a novel because there's another story that's supposed to lie behind it. The true story. And parts of John look like they may well be different to what really happened. People in the story might have been different to how he portrays them. If it is a mixture of fact or genuine material and fiction, the way to read it is critically John is one of the New Testament writers who doesn't expect this of his readers. He writes with a lot of assurance, in a way that seems to anticipate an audience that is inclined to believe in his divine inspiration. He does a lot of preaching, and it's an impressive piece of work, with some of the best the New Testament has to offer. But when you go back to Mark, generally considered by historians to have been written earliest of the four, you're reading a different type of writing. It's rough. There's the impression of a limited perspective. A writer who seems to be saying, this much we know, make of it what you will. What this writer believes is not so clear. He generally doesn't seem to be telling us what to believe, so much as telling us what he believes happened. 
Mark could well be a compilation of memorised anecdotes. It's incomplete. It stops and starts in patches. Parables of Jesus and the like are presented in a way that might have been memorised by people who experienced the events described, who were Jews. John, on the other hand, seems to be the work of a Gentile Christian author with developed theology around what he's relating, who is extensively embellishing and writing over the top of a story that is not his own. Where's the evidence for this? It's in the fact that this author shows absolute contempt for the Jewish people he writes about, including the followers of Jesus, people he is quite removed from, because he is not a Jew and he does not share their beliefs. He writes from this removed perspective. While at the same time, this narrative in John is built around an extensive story that shows familiarity with the customs and features of first century Jewish life. This underlying material must have come from people who were not removed from this time and place, and who would have originally told the story from a Jewish perspective. At least two layers here. This is a Gentile Christian retelling a Jewish story. Just in passing, I'd like to affirm something that I think could do with some repeating. Anti-Semitism is a positive identifier for people who are not Jews. Seems obvious, doesn't it? But this has gone unnoticed for a long time. I'm sure I'll be saying it a few more times in different ways. Jewish story, passed on by Jews, originally told from their perspective, which doesn't include anti-Semitic sentiment. Anti-Semitic sentiment is there, so at some point it was added. So these documents have stuff that was added by the wrong people. And the wrong people are Gentile writers, who seem to have been Christians. It's fairly straightforward. I don't think I'm missing something here. I'm demonstrating reasons for these conclusions as I go, and if I am missing something, I hope it will be brought to my attention. In Mark, there is not so much that can be identified as anti-Semitic. Even the crucify him scene doesn't put the blame on the Jewish people in the same way as in Matthew. The anti-Semitism seems to come in progressively from Mark to John. And so does the Christianity. There is very little material in Mark that is distinctly Christian. We'll be tracing the progressive nature of these things later. Back to John again, and we've got a Christian author who wants us to believe he's in possession of surprisingly lengthy transcripts of what Jesus said. And of course, believing that he was inspired by God is an answer to how this could be. And it's an answer to what I was saying before about reading these documents like we read fiction, with the assumption that the author knows everything and is always right. God can provide this all-knowing perspective. But if God is the author of the first three of these stories, his memory is patchy and gets worse, even to the point where he often needs to get his inspired writers to copy his previous work, and the work of others as well. The end result, including quite a few contradictions, which would prove to be a bit tricky for Christians to explain in years to come. And then on the fourth attempt, his memory gets much better. Of course, this can't be right. God's memory would have to be always exceptional. So if God was involved in the composition of these documents in some way, 
He's taken a back seat the first three times, leaving these inspired writers to their own devices. These documents are patchworks of pieces of this story. Matthew, Mark and Luke are commonly referred to as the Synoptic Gospels due to their striking similarities. They are three documents with clear evidence of a lot of copying between them, sometimes word for word. This means one of them could be a primary source for the other two, and the most popular conclusion among historians is that Mark is this exception. So the other two are in large part compilations from other sources, including Mark if the theory is correct. And this doesn't indicate that these writers were closely associated with the people who originally told the story. They're dependent on other sources for many of these pieces of story that they're pulling together. They're drawing from the work of other people who came before them. And the literary similarities show that these sources are in written form. Which places these writers at a distance from the people who originally told the story, even though their work is not all copied from known sources. Think of the Christian tradition that the Matthew Gospel is the work of Matthew, the disciple of Jesus. The real Matthew wouldn't need to copy anyone. He'd have his own story to tell, and it would be the perspective of a Jew who followed Jesus. The nature of his testimony would be entirely different. These documents have another perspective, and they are a different genre. Reading them as if they are the personal testimony of people who were there is reading them for what they are not. Even Mark reads like a compilation of oral tradition rather than a first-hand account. Alternatively, if you recognise that this literature is the work of human authors and that some of it is likely to be contribution from copyists or people who are taking an original account and adding to it or taking away from it, you might be reading it for what it is. So where am I headed with this? In the writing of this episode, I've been bouncing around a bit between points of interest, trying to remember what I've said I'm going to cover, getting sidetracked, finding interesting portions of text to look into, just writing what seems to follow from the last thing I said. But I hope the progressive nature of what I'm doing is reasonably clear. And what we're doing is moving back towards a time and place, towards the setting of these gospel stories early 1st century Galilee and Judea, a setting that may well be foreign to early Christian writers, as revealed by their own prejudice. With this in mind, as we look back to this time and place, it's reasonable to assume that things will be different to Christian expectations. And to appreciate what the Jewish followers of Jesus might have believed, we need to bring into the scenario a recognition of this concept of Messiah, as opposed to the Christian concept of Christ. This is a podcast about Christianity, and we're in the process of looking for the starting point of this religion by tracing its primary doctrine back in time. This primary doctrine being what I'm calling the Christ concept, a teaching that says Jesus came to die as a sacrifice for sins. We're tracing this concept back to the first people who believed it, and we're asking the question, who were they? The very first people who believed it, who were they? 
We saw in the last episode that Jesus doesn't seem to have taught his disciples this concept, according to the stories in the New Testament. And we saw that at least some of the people involved in writing these stories do seem to have believed it. These are indications of different people with different beliefs about the mission of Jesus. There is good evidence for this. That we're meant to think that the writers of these documents were a part of the same movement as the Jewish followers of Jesus, and therefore believed the same things. This is supposed to be one movement, Christianity. The disciples of Jesus are meant to have been the first Christians. A Christian is someone who trusts in the death and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. But Jesus' disciples are recorded to have not known what he was talking about when he spoke of his death and resurrection, right up until after it happened. So the only way this can work is if the disciples convert at some point. The story needs to have them become Christians. So, according to these writers, they see the light after he rises from the dead. They understand once they're corrected by the risen Jesus. Now he tells them, and so informed, they're ready to go out into the world to preach the good news. This new message, this different message that Jesus doesn't seem to have taught when he was alive. That's quite a challenge they've been given. They're to go out to the people of Judea and Galilee, people who, to various degrees, would have known about the teaching of Jesus, say that he told them the most important bit after he died, and proclaim that they all need to believe this Christian message, because their concept of Messiah is not even close. Among these Jews, there was a significant movement of people who were followers of Jesus. So this would also mean attempting to convert them. It would have taken some convincing to get them to become Christians and come to church, where the Eucharist would be taken according to the latest instructions. In the last episode, we saw how the writer of John gave us a sample of how that idea might have gone down with a crowd of Jews who were following Jesus in Galilee. And that was coming from Jesus himself. So the disciples might have had a hard time of this. There might have been some reservations. These people may still not be ready to take the Christian Eucharist and its implications into their belief system. But the question here is, had the disciples really taken it into theirs? And was the Christian Eucharist even a thing yet? If the first Christian churches really did start with the disciples of Jesus, their escapades, as they attempted to fulfil this mission, would have made for an interesting story, and one that would have been important for early Christians in regards to the development of the church, demonstrating its connection with Jesus. But the truth is, we know next to nothing about the subsequent lives of the disciples of Jesus. Outside of a few chapters in the book of Acts, which moves our attention away from them, and a few vague legends about where they went, because no convincing record of them beyond that was preserved by the Christian church. And the Christian church was the agency that determined what was preserved and what wasn't. There was another agency, the Roman Empire, but before Constantine, when the empire was persecuting Christians and might have destroyed their writings, there's a pretty good chance the Romans weren't clear on what was orthodox and what wasn't. They would have seen Christians as Christians. The fact that the vast majority of the material that made it through was orthodox means that it was the church that acted as the filter.
And this orthodox material is missing some very important information about the people who really knew Jesus. So what does this mean? Choices were being made. Writers, editors, authorities that arranged for the disposal of documents and the preservation of others. We know Christian writers and church fathers were around early enough to have had access to information about the disciples of Jesus and their Jewish movement if they went looking for it. And surely it would have been there. The same interest that people had in Jesus would have naturally translated into interest in his closest followers. It stands to reason that there would have been more information about these men. And it's fallen into a hole that was dug by the church. So why would they do that? One of the legends about the disciples of Jesus has Peter going to Rome and acting as the first pope. The second century Church of Rome was motivated to substantiate this story to promote its primacy over other churches. But it seems they didn't come up with anything much to prove it. Historians don't agree that Peter even went to Rome. If he did, the first century Roman church may not have known about it, or they may have chosen not to keep a record of what he was doing. If he wasn't associated with the Christian churches, that's a problem that doesn't work with the Christian story. So silence here is the only option. Orthodox Christian church history, starting with the book of Acts, is like a spotlight. The spotlight follows the people we're supposed to take interest in. The story requires the disciples of Jesus to be there to kick things off. But then we're not interested in them anymore. The spotlight is already following someone else. The spotlight is interested in the founding of Christian churches. So it goes elsewhere. Writers, editors, authorities making choices. It's not by accident that we have so little information about these men. And the earliest church fathers don't seem to be familiar with them either. In a later episode, we'll be looking at the claimed relationship between a few of the earliest church fathers and the disciple John, who is said to have lived the longest. When I started this podcast, I wasn't entirely sure what I believed personally about this belief that Jesus died as a sacrifice for our sins. And I had other ideas about where the line of logic was going to go. But this is where it's gone. This belief is the core of Orthodox Christianity. It's a marker. It identifies people. So looking for the first believers in this concept, as opposed to the Jewish Messiah concept, we're going to look at evidence in some more documents. To make sure I stay on track here, I've made a note to myself. Don't forget, we're positively looking for the Christ concept, looking to see where it makes early appearances, and looking for good reasons to believe that it's coming from the right people. And the right people are the Jewish followers of Jesus, the people who were actually there with him, the people who knew him and heard his words and witnessed what actually went down. These people passed on information about him, they were first century people of Galilee and Judea. They can be identified by their race, their culture, their local knowledge, and their beliefs. Then there are four stories that we have about Jesus in written form. These stories exhibit these qualities. They seem to have originally come from people who were familiar with the right time, place, and culture. They do have a very real place in history. 
that they are also stories that have the telltale signs of another people and another time, Gentile writers. These are the documents that made it into the New Testament, preserved by the Gentile Christian churches and then authorised by the Roman Catholic Church. So we can draw a distinction here between two different people groups. And it's a distinction that's not all that hard to make. Jews and Gentiles, their language is different. People identify themselves by things they say. Jews and Christians, very different. They say different things. They use different terminology. But the first Christians are meant to have been Jews, often referred to as Jewish Christians, even by many historians. This reinforces the idea of one movement, or at least one system of belief. Jewish Christians is used to refer to the ongoing Jesus movement among Jews, as if there is no question that if they believed in Jesus, their belief would be in keeping with Gentile Christianity rather than the other way around. That is, rather than Gentile Christianity demonstrating that its belief is in keeping with the Jewish movement. No ongoing Jewish movement is really recognised in Christian church history. It's another thing that doesn't work with the story, another historical fact that's been glossed over and replaced with silence. And the vague idea that there was some sort of transformation from Jewish to Gentile. But thanks to the zeal of the Church Fathers in condemning heretics, that silence was broken, and we have some sketchy information about some interesting Jewish movements in their letters, some of which I read out in the second part of the introduction to this podcast. Their strong dislike for Jews who profess faith in Jesus does not indicate that this was one movement. And this is something we're seeing in the New Testament as a whole, Strong dislike for Jews. Evidence for two movements, generally speaking. There's plenty more to come. It's in the documents. So we're going to be reading the documents with an awareness of this. And when you do that, the very real human drama of rivalry and the jealous guarding of religious primacy comes to life. It's better than Game of Thrones because there are real events behind the story. It's got mystery, a brilliant ecclesiastical facade and the challenge to read between the lines and make wild guesses about what was really going on to get into a bit of literary archaeology because that's about all you can do thanks to the Christian church but there is quite a bit of information about the original followers of Jesus that can be gleaned from the documents and the key to this endeavor after recognizing the intent of writers and the spotlight effect and our strange tendency to look where the light is shining and forget about everything else, is to consider relationships. In this episode, and episodes that we'll be following, we're going to be moving into looking at the relationship between these two movements. The hostility of Gentile Christians towards Jews seems to have grown as time went on. So as we go back in time, moving from the book of John to the other Gospels, we see less of this and we can consider this relationship earlier in the first century, when it really mattered. The relationship between the original followers of Jesus and the early Christian churches. One thing we'll notice, though, is that it's a bit one-sided. There's plenty of material that reveals how the Gentile Christians felt about the Jews. 
while there's almost nothing about how the Jews felt towards the Gentiles. The Jews don't seem to get a word in. Relationships. We've all seen relationships like this, where one party is telling everybody their version of the story, and this combined with silence from the other party tends to win people over to the side of the speaker. People can forget that there are two sides to these stories, when there's so much coming from the one side. In the book of John, written late in the first century or early in the second, we have a writer who often tells us what to think about Jews. But what about the Jews who followed Jesus? How did the writer of this document feel towards them? Here's a bit where he identifies them and then lets loose. Reading from chapter 8, verse 31. Notice, he identifies who he has Jesus speaking to first up. Quote, To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me, because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. We are not illegitimate children, they, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. Unquote. Okay, who is Jesus meant to have been talking to here? It says he was talking to the Jews who had believed him. And these are very clearly the people he continues to talk to. The Jews who had believed him could simply refer to the people who believed what he'd just been saying and might not believe the next thing he says, with no real attachment, not necessarily his followers. They might have put their hands up and said, We believe you're right about that. Or, We decided we believe in you five minutes ago. Or their position might have been, we used to believe you, but now we've changed our minds. And Jesus might have then addressed them as a group, referred to as the Jews who had believed him. But in the real world, how does a speaker identify and address people according to what they're thinking? Jesus might have identified the people he was talking to by saying, Okay, now I'm talking to these people the ones who are thinking such and such. But it's not Jesus who identifies the people he's addressing here. It's the writer. The writer knows. 
Who is being referred to here is really important. There's a group of people here that are being absolutely condemned. This is quite significant. So I looked at what a few other translations have for who these people were. The King James Version has those Jews which believed on him. The American Standard Version, those Jews that had believed him. J.B. Phillips, the Jews who believed in him. Bible in Basic English, the Jews who had faith in him. Young's Literal Translation, the Jews who believed in him. New Revised Standard Version, the Jews who had believed in him. I believe the versions that are more dedicated to a literal translation are saying, believed in him. It seems this is a more honest translation of what's being expressed by this writer. It's not absolutely conclusive. I had a look at the Greek and it seems like the words could be translated either way. But I think you've got to not want the writer to be talking about Jesus' followers to go looking for some flimsy alternative. Some other group, somehow distinct from the wider audience, due to their belief in him, that Jesus is meant to be addressing. So, in this passage, we have Jesus talking to the Jews who had believed in him. And after a bit of exhortation that doesn't go down too well, he says that he knows they want to kill him. And then after some bickering, he ends up saying that they are children of the devil. Unlikely that Jesus would have said these things to the Jews who had believed in him because his followers were Jews who had believed in him. And among these followers, there's meant to be someone who witnessed these events and recorded them so they could be included in the Bible for the benefit of later Christians. So they would know that these people were children of the devil. The disciples were among the Jews who had believed him, including John, who the Christian church likes to think was the author of this work. Was the real John a Christian, or was he a Jewish devil? Well, we know he was Jewish. And the author of this work is giving his readers a Jesus who really doesn't like Jews. His readers, being the Christian churches this document circulated amongst, who were, of course, not Jews. These are people from a later time, so the Jews who had believed in him might have been a reference in the past tense for them because around the turn of the century, these Gentile Christians see themselves as the present followers of Jesus who have supplanted these Jews. But this was a time when these Jews were still around. The ongoing movement of people who were the original followers of Jesus hadn't disappeared. They might have been meeting in synagogues if observations made by church fathers are correct. And they might have been aware of this document ascribed to John that was being read in Christian churches. If not, they probably would have been aware of the sentiment expressed within it. So if the real John was still around at this time, an extremely old man, what are the chances that he would have been game enough to walk into one of the Christian churches that venerated this document? Not very likely. Whoever wrote this stuff, in its final form, along with the churches he represents, is in a community that is opposed to John and his people. And what better way to have a go at your rivals than to have the Son of God give them a piece of his mind, 
dropping into the first century of the Christian imagination to be surrounded by Jewish devils who assault him from all sides with their grievous error, while he addresses them all with his sweeping condemnation. Meanwhile, there's a very astute observer who is recording this information for us, maybe hovering overhead in his time machine, taking notes, carefully keeping his distance from these evil children of the devil as he frowns with Christian indignation. If this is how this writer feels about the Jews who knew Jesus, he probably wasn't sitting around the campfire with them listening to their stories. He's somewhere else, and he's got another Jesus for us. Just to go a little deeper into the Christian psyche here, when passages like this are read, I have an NIV study Bible, which is a Bible with Christian commentary. For this verse we're looking at, where it says, to the Jews who believed in him, Jesus said, etc. It says in the commentary, quote, Believed here seems to mean made a formal profession of faith, unquote. So, presumably looking at the Greek, these commentators recognise that it's talking about a significant profession of faith. It seems like they're saying believed in would be a better translation, even though their NIV has only believed looking in the introduction to this study Bible, it says that the commentary is the work of a trans-denominational team of biblical scholars. The next comment these scholars make about these Jews who believed in him is, quote, their words show that they were not true believers, unquote. And then in brackets, see verses 33 and 37. Verse 33 is where they say they're not slaves and don't need to be set free. And 37 is where Jesus says they are ready to kill him because they have no room for his word. So basically, we're looking at a situation where the writer of the document is saying that these people were believers in Jesus in no uncertain terms. His terminology suggests they'd identified themselves as such. And the commentators recognize this. But then they say these people can't have been true believers. The reason for this is fairly straightforward. If they were true believers, Jesus wouldn't condemn them like this. Why would Jesus make it known that he was talking to the Jews who believed in him and then condemn them? It's clearly the writer who is doing this. But these scholars will not go there. Better to have a Jesus that makes no sense than to question the writer of the document. In the introduction to the study Bible, I also found the following statement about its team of scholars. All confess the authority of the Bible as God's infallible word to humanity. And a quick search on the meaning of the word infallible. Incapable of making mistakes or being wrong. Belief in this idea can make people incapable of seeing this material for what it is. Slander. If it's said the Jews who believed in Jesus actually tried to kill him and started throwing rocks and growing horns, would just as many people believe that? Here's the NIV Study Bible's introduction to the Gospel of John. Quote, The author is the Apostle John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Unquote. No question for these scholars. This is Christian commentary, constrained by dedication to assumptions about this book. 
This is a 2002 copy. They might have changed their tune since then. Alright, moving on from John to the earlier stories about Jesus in the New Testament, the Synoptic Gospels. And in them, Jesus seems to have a different regard for his followers. He's teaching them as people who are with him, not against him. And he seems to have a different opinion about some other things as well. We move from a Jesus in John who consistently tells us to just believe. Chapter 6, verse 28, quote, Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Verse 40, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Verse 47, Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. John 8, 24, If you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. Unquote. We move from this to a Jesus who tells us more about love in action and the kingdom of God. When asked a similar question, he points to the Ten Commandments and talks about caring for people in need. These are the things that really matter. The greatest commandment is to love God, and this means loving your neighbour. He says, hearing his words and putting them into practice is like building a house on rock. Sounds like he's talking about essentials. In this shift, we're moving from conceptual, otherworldly belief to more practical exhortation to live well in this life. Less about what you think, more about what you do. And this shift looks like a shift from Christ to Messiah. Okay, that's the end of chapter 5, part 1. Part 2 coming up.